One quick pre-show note before I get started. I'm sure a lot of people enjoyed the two-hour format, and that is probably something I'll do occasionally or from time to time, depending on the subject matter. But I think especially as I'm getting started here, it makes more sense to have shorter shows to begin. So I think the target is going to be about 45, 35 to 45 minutes a show. This show is about 45 minutes. I also might do two shows a week in that case. The first show and the weekly show will always release on Monday or Tuesday. Tuesday. If there is a second show, it will be released on Wednesday or Thursday on the Substack. The Reddit and YouTube might be about a day later. Anyway, uh, that's all I have, and let's get into it. Hello all, and welcome to show two of this Dynasty Fantasy Football show. The show is still untitled, and I am still your host, CJ Friel. For those of you who listened to the first show and felt that they got something out of it, or maybe you just gave me another chance, I'm glad to have you here. I'm also glad to have anyone here who's joining for the first time. The biggest news story for this week, particularly for this show, which deals primarily with future prospects for the NFL game, are the new inputs that we have from the Senior Bowl. It should be fairly obvious that this show does not send people, primarily myself, to Mobile, Alabama, so there won't be any first-hand reporting here. That's also why I don't rush to put something like this out, right? I'm not rushing to beat a lot of the sources that have people there. I'm looking to analyze some of the returns, some of the players that get the most hype, and try to make sense on this end, the analytical side on if these players deserve the buzz or the pushing that they're going to get. This also probably is a good time to mention that there's some kind of dynamics between being optimistic and pessimistic when you're building a show like this from the ground up. A lot of people I've seen writing about podcasts say that they're looking for shows that are more honest and direct about player analysis, that aren't about fluff, that aren't just telling you why everybody's good, and I buy into that, and I want to be that, and I want to be a trusted source. On the other hand, I also have experienced in my 10 years of writing, or rough 10 years of writing in this space, that you really do get a lot more positive feedback when you're on the positive side of players. All of this is really a preface to say that a lot of the players that will be discussed are going to be on kind of the negative side on today's show. This show might be a bit of a wet blanket, but my goal is to give you the best information possible, and sometimes that's to take somebody who's starting to get pushed into the top 35-40 picks of mock drafts and say that I really don't think that player deserves the kind of credit in our circles, even if they're, say, a wide receiver. So it's important to highlight some players who are big standouts on the positive side, particularly players like Ricky Pearsall, the wide receiver from Florida, and Dylan Lowby, who I now realize should be pronounced Lowby, the running back from New Hampshire, uh, Neither of these, because neither of these players were handled really at all in the first show. I did mention Lowby, but the only thing I really said about him was that I didn't know anything about him because he was from the FCS level. Both of these players have started to get some buzz following the Senior Bowl, and so I wanted to break them down because they weren't mentioned in the rookie primer whatsoever.
After that, I also want to discuss some key measurables from the game, as the Senior Bowl is one of the first times that we get universal measurables for prospects that all come from the same scale and an unbiased scale. This is important for a number of things and will also lead into some discussions that can kind of get us ready for the combine and some of the key numbers that we'll be looking for for some of the bigger name players. I can also tell you that this podcast won't cover it too much, but I've done a lot of research into some of the size-related things that can sometimes uh, associate with success. Now, I haven't written up this research or published it primarily because it's, you know, it's a fairly small edge, even in my own opinion, and size itself isn't the most predictive thing. But you know, we'll get there. When we get there with the size, there's just some things that I look at a little bit differently and it'll help to use some of these senior bull numbers uh, to head into that direction. Uh, And then before moving on to anything else, I wanted to start with just briefly touching on the senior bull itself. Now, a lot of these topics are things that are going to be talked about with pretty much every senior bull show, so I don't want to get into it too much here, but there are some critical aspects, and if you don't deal with the senior bull much, or if you haven't dealt with it specifically, a show that talks about it for fantasy, there might be some things that are are worth mentioning. Uh, The first being that, in my opinion, at least, not failing is dramatically more important than having a great week. For all of these environments where uh, before the NFL level, where everything gets evened out by being in the NFL, when you're bringing players from all kinds of different environments into one place, the number one thing you don't want is to be the player that sticks out as not really belonging or not really keeping up to speed, right? It's also important to point out that there's very specific positional or drill-based things. Like, for for example, some drills may favor the offense, some drills may favor the defense, you might get caught up in things like this. And for positions like quarterback, it can also be increasingly difficult because quarterback is a very communication system, rapport, uh, you know, chemistry type of position. And at the senior bowl, you have none of these things. Most of the wide receivers you've never thrown to. Sometimes a couple of guys get in there that, you know, are from your team. But for the most part, you're dealing with entirely new circumstances, which aren't really indicative of making you look particularly good. And then finally, and maybe the most important thing, is that the best talent is almost never going to be at the Senior Bowl. Now, there are allowing underclassmen to come to the Senior Bowl now, which is why you see some players like Jalen Wright there, or he wasn't there, I don't believe, but he was on the list at one point as being allowed to be there. Uh, And, you know, you see that, now that and you've never seen that before and that is a new rule change and i do think that will increase the potential ceiling of prospects in the senior bowl and the senior bowl practices but most of the high level guys are still not going to be there and when high level guys go you will occasionally see times where it seems like if they do dominate early, like a Jermaine Johnson from a couple years ago, they seem to immediately fade out and potentially even go away from the event entirely, probably because they were taken aside by an NFL team and told that the risk of injury was not worth it. 
And so on that note, it makes sense for us to transition into players, starting with Michael Penix Jr., who's in kind of a situation like that, at least depending on who you ask. Now, the thing about a lot of situations like this is that we don't necessarily get concrete information. We have a lot of speculation, guessing games, things of this nature. Uh, The only theory I'm confident isn't true is the people who believe that not participating in the Senior Bowl is some kind of indictment on the moral, ethical character of Michael Penix in some way. That is the one argument I'm going to put aside and say is pretty much BS. But other than that, it's kind of hard to know exactly what the truth is. I think a lot of people do believe that this is a strong indicator that somebody got in touch with Penix's camp and said, hey, we really want to take you in the first round please do not get injured on my personal reading of the situation i also do think there's a considerable amount of you know i do think there's a considerable chance that michael Penix jr just looked at the situation around him you know this is a guy who plays very well when he's comfortable sometimes is not playing as well when he's off of his spot and also plays really well in drills in terms of he looks very good because of how strong his arm is and he can really shine in those areas i do think there's a bit of a logic into just the idea that regardless of you know it does you don't necessarily need to believe that you're going to be the greatest in the world or the worst you might just look at a situation and say there's not much for us to gain by playing in this game and there is something for us to lose if we just look fairly bad even if we don't get injured you know injury is obviously uh, a big case in it too but you know so so maybe this is an indicator that Michael Penix Jr. is going to be a first-round pick. I do not have the confidence there. Uh, The only thing I will say is I don't think it's an indictment on his character. So really there's not much to say there because I don't have any kind of insider information or anything like that, but that's just the way. I'm reading that situation uh, in terms of Michael Penix. And then on to some of the guys who are seen a bit as consensus fallers. Uh, I want to briefly discuss Tez Walker and Xavier Leggett. Now, faller is a bit of a tricky term in this uh, situation because I don't necessarily think, in terms of my personal rankings, that I'm moving them at all. But these are two players, particularly with how physical they are, with how imposing they have the potential to be, and in this senior bowl setting, that they really had an opportunity to potentially say, enter, for me, what is the top seven wide receivers. Instead of taking that opportunity, they have instead kind of moved back to what might be, say, the next seven wide receivers, potentially. Now, Tez Walker's big thing this weekend was drops, and drops are kind of a fluky statistic. They can come and go, and I don't want to make too much of them. But like I said at the top of the show, my big thing about a lot of these situations, whether it be the Senior Bowl, whether it be the Combine, is when you show up, you just don't want to be the one that sticks out for being bad. And Tez Walker did do that in certain ways uh, during this weekend. So I do think he has to be considered a clear faller. And even more clear is the falling from Xavier Leggett's uh, measurements. Xavier Leggett was a player who, as highlighted in show one, is not really that good of an analytical prospect in a number of ways. However, Xavier Leggett has profiled as somebody who has seen as having uh, a high level of physical upside, both with his size, his speed, and his explosiveness. The size didn't really show up to Mobile, Alabama, as he measured in at 6'1", 
foot one inch flat. Obviously that's not particularly small, but when you're expecting someone to be about six three or what that's you know, if that's how you're kind of basing your profile around him, being closer to six one is obviously a pretty big change. Xavier Leggett still might be someone who's seen as a day two pick, maybe even as a day one pick. Maybe I'm just overreacting, maybe I'm just a little bit biased by past grades I've had. But as someone who's been a little bit lower on Leggett throughout this entire process, there were definitely times throughout the process where I was very confident he'd be a top 50 pick and thought he definitely had a decent chance of being a first-round pick. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. As the process keeps going on, it does seem like he's a player where the you know the warts or the faults or the flaws or however you want to say it, they, they seem to start... They, they seem to be kind of showing a little bit uh, with Xavier Leggett in a way that seems obvious and in a way that a lot of people are picking up on and talking about. And in that discussion, uh, I'm you know worried for him that he might be starting to move down that day to range towards the bottom end of it. So Tez Walker, Xavier Leggett, if you are looking at where I had them ranked in the last show, which is basically in that second seven of wide receivers outside of the top seven, they probably aren't moving from that spot. I don't think they should really move for a lot of people unless maybe you were really, really high on one or the other. But they definitely, the biggest thing here is that they definitely both blew an opportunity to enter into a higher range, right? Uh, there was a very prominent big board who I just am not mentioning the name because I don't want to want it to sound like I'm calling out. But there was a very prominent big board who recently had Tez Walker as a top 32 player. And you have to imagine that's very likely to change at this point. All right, so moving on to players who performed well in the week itself, I want to break down a bit what I have been doing since the Senior Bowl in my analysis of Ricky Pearsall and Dylan Lauby. I have been digging into statistics, some more analytical data, and also acquiring game films that I can use to judge the traits for these players myself. I never intend for any of these kind of things to be seen as full scouted reports, as I think that kind of suggests a detail that I'm not really intending. These are more overviews of players, but as suggested in show one, I believe most overviews of players that focus on traits and analytics will get you into the right general range of where a player should go, even if it's just on the right day. And this is, as much as these are risers for a lot of people, this is the section that might become a little bit of a wet blanket, right? So Ricky Pearsall appears to have the most of the hype that I've seen, uh, especially in terms of somebody who wasn't getting it before. Maybe Roman Wilson's getting more hype, maybe Ladd McConkey, but those guys were getting it before. Same with Brendan Rice uh, to an extent. The one guy who's getting a lot of hype off the Senior Bowl who was not getting it before is Florida wide receiver Ricky Pearsall. I've even seen him mocked as highly as 33rd. Uh, I've seen NFL draft conversations on subreddits discussing whether he is now a second round pick and I've seen a lot of amateur mock drafts put him into the third round. So that's kind of where the consensus you know again maybe it's just overreaction or senior draft cycle but that's kind of where the consensus is starting to push Ricky Pearsall I am having a really hard time getting to a day two grade 
on Ricky Pearsall. So to begin analytically, out of over 50 wide receivers on my age list between 2022 and 2024 draft cycles, Pearsall is the second oldest wide receiver behind only Valus Jones Jr., who, if you remember, had a lot of memes and jokes told about how old he was. Now, to be fair, those memes do hold up because Valus Jones is a full year and more older than Ricky Pearsall, but Pearsall is still going to be a full 24 years old in September, which makes him one of the older wide receiver running back prospects at positions where that is actually pretty important, particularly in how you look at production. And then as a five-year starter, Ricky Pearsall has never had a thousand yards. He cracked 900 for the first time this past year in his fifth season. And the big thing about this, too, is that he had his biggest and most efficient games against his weakest opponents. He beat up FCS McNeese State and also Charlotte. Pearsall did have one of his bigger games against Georgia, but the production in this game is almost entirely inflation, right? So just to begin, Pearsall only had two receiving yards by the time his team was down about 19 points. This occurred in the first drive, but Florida did have the ball about five times, so Pearsall had plenty of opportunities to make impacts early in the game, and then 42 yards in a game of under 100 total yards occurred in the final drive, where Florida was down 43-13, to and Georgia was playing a significant number of their backups. On top of this, a number of the plays in which Pearsall got open and converted yardage or big plays against Georgia were not plays that I would consider trans from the sense that they had a lot to do with scheme, right? So for example, the biggest example of this is when Ricky Pearsall is lined up almost in line, blocks to start the play, it ends up being a flea flicker, and then he goes into the flat and up in a wheel type route, and it's a big gainer. That's a hard thing to believe in a translatable way because that's just a play of deceit and deception with that flea flicker that is meant to just confuse the defense and and take advantage of lower awareness in, in particular at the college football level. There are also just simple plays like being the most inside man on a bunch and just running an inside crossing route you know these things you know there's nothing bad about them there's nothing wrong with doing them and as a college football fan I would want my coach to associate these things into the playbook but as an analyst watching this player against Georgia it's hard to make much about this game film and think that you know he's showing anything in a, in a high level capacity so you know I'm looking at the traits I'm looking at the skills and I'm not seeing a translation that tells me that this is somebody that I'm looking at as as someone who's highly likely to break a mold right because if if Ricky Pearsall as a five-year starter without a thousand yard season at 24 years old is a high level NFL wide receiver he is significantly breaking a mold and I really don't see that here and I think it's also important to point out that it is not a good thing and it is not a good idea to chase something because you missed something in a previous year. And it feels a little bit like people are looking for a profile that looks like Puka Nakua because they missed Puka Nakua. But I also think there's some key significant differences and important things about Puka Nakua in particular to point out when looking at comparable profiles. The biggest being that Puka Nakua was never healthy. 
Puka Nakua ran 607 routes this year as a Ram between the regular and postseason. In his career at BYU between the regular and postseason, he ran 507 routes. That is 100 less routes in four years at BYU than, or between BYU and the school he went to first. Four years in college where he failed to get as many snaps as he did in just one year this year with the Rams. Put that into a contrast, in five years of college football, Ricky Pearsall has ran over 1,200 routes, over twice as many as Puka Nakua ran. So we have had exposure to Ricky Pearsall. We've had significant exposure to Ricky Pearsall. And what it tells us is that analytically and in most Basically, anything you look at, he does not line up with the high-level day two or day one level wide receivers of years past. So, as much as Ricky Pearsall is an intriguing name, as much as there's a lot of excitement about him, as as much as there's people who make more money in this and are smarter at this than I am seeing his praises right now, I still believe Ricky Pearsall should very firmly be considered a round five or six player in the NFL and not a player in round two or three. And I do believe he's the kind of player where even if he gets selected in round two or three, he's probably going to be at the very tail end of all players drafted on the first two days on my board. On a slightly more positive note, I am moving Dylan Lauby a bit up my board following the Senior Bowl. Lauby shows an excellent first step quickness, has great size in terms of BMI, and you can particularly see it in his upper body. He is also very smooth at transitioning from being a ball catcher to a ball carrier. This is the biggest selling point as he is a high volume pass catcher, and this is a running back class that has been a bit devoid of a receiving back. While Central Michigan is not a great program by any means, Lauby had almost 300, 300 receiving yards against them in his only game last year against FBS competition. There is a lot to like with Lauby, and I believe that he can do a lot for an NFL team. It's also important to reiterate what I said in the show, uh, or on show one, that running back is the most traits-driven position. So while Anything else that you might look at with Dylan Lauby might be a little disappointing here or there. It is important to remember that if you believe in that first step, if you believe in that transition, and if you believe in his ability to catch passes, if he's given the right opportunity and role, that is a player that can have a lot of value, particularly in PPR leagues. All of that said, I do think he is a bit more of the classic day three priority player than an actual day two talent and so to begin there's a few things that make me say that particularly in the analytics and digging through the numbers a bit more right so while he is a prolific pass catcher one of the big numbers I like to look at with running backs that I don't think it's brought up enough with pass catching is just the average depth of target right because if you're getting a lot of passes around the line of scrimmage that's very valuable for your team but it doesn't quite show as much so for guys that I want to see uh, be higher in pass catch at the next level, I hope that their A dots are just a bit further downfield. Donovan Edwards is a great example of this, even though he's not a member of this class because he's going back to Michigan for the 2024 season. 
the Michigan running back Donovan Edwards might not have a ton of receptions, but he has a ton of downfield receptions compared to the running to other running backs in his class and in in college football the last few years, which is what makes him an intriguing receiving back. I'm a little concerned about the fact that Lauby did not do this and did not work down the field and he also has a couple of things like the second shortest arms of any running back it at the senior bowl that makes me a little bit concerned that there is some translation problems there he did see some snaps at the slot but they were mostly few and far between and he also had five drops this year I don't want to make too much about drops, but it is just worth noting when you put everything else together that Lauby might be a guy who's very good at catching and running, but he might not actually be a good downfield receiver, which is a potential, potentially scary limitation for a guy that you're already projecting as more of a pass-catching running back. And then it's also worth pointing out that you know, I have I have issues on some level with myself doing this when you're cherry picking games and taking, say, a player's four worst games. But I think there's a logic behind doing it in a case like this when we're talking about the FCS. Because someone like Dylan Lauby, someone that you believe can be an NFL running back at the FCS, really shouldn't have games like this, right? So in four games, he put up thirty-six targets. 24 receptions and 122 yards. 36 targets on 122 yards is very, very bad at any level. And so doing that at a low level, even if you know, even if you want to say that obviously his situation around him was not NFL caliber because he himself is on an FCS team, at that low of a level of competition, you would expect just something a little bit better than like what three yards per target I mean those are some very very poor numbers and then I haven't talked about age with Lauby yet but uh, he is another player who is very old now Lauby is a player I haven't been able to find the actual birth date yet but he did graduate high school in 2018 because he started with the New Hampshire football team in the fall of 2018. So that means he's probably roughly 24 years old right now, making him one of the youngest, or excuse me, one of the oldest running backs, both in this class and in the last three classes combined. So at this traits-driven position, I do want to tie back to the beginning where the positives are about size, quickness, first step, transitioning from ball catcher to ball carrier, but ultimately Lauby does not have some of the same indicators that, say, a player like Austin Eckler had, right? Austin Eckler is probably your quintessential comparison that you want to make for a lower level running back, because Austin Eckler was a dominant force for his team. But Austin Eckler had almost two or he had over 2,000 yards a season and in some of those seasons he played only 10 games averaging 200 total yards a game. Lauby had 1,400 total yards this year and 18 touchdowns. Very good numbers but nowhere near the same level. So Dylan Lauby is a player that I like. I'm rising up my board but I don't see you know if, if anybody I guess what I'm trying to say is if anybody is trying to make Dylan Lauby into something like the next Austin Eckler, into somebody who can be a savior for this running back class, who can get into the top three, top five of the running back class, 
I do not believe he is that kind of player. I do believe he is a player who can be potentially intriguing uh, later in drafts, maybe off waiver wires, or just generally in the right situation as a potential PPR running back. And there are some intriguing tools there. But I definitely don't see the... Uh, uh, the elite high level uh, of a player like Austin Eckler. But again, at a traits-driven position, there are some intriguing traits that I can hold on to, and I'm certainly higher on a player uh, like Lauby than Ricky Pearsall. I now want to move into a conversation about some of the measurements we've gotten from the Senior Bowl, and particularly want to use some of those measurements as a jumping-off point to kind of talk about the NFL Combine, which is actually only a little over three weeks away. Now, I don't want to talk about the Combine too much specifically or directly in this specific show. It's just important to keep in mind as we you know, get to the Combine to think about what kinds of things do matter at least a little bit or can matter in terms of profiling uh, some of these prospects. I also want to say uh, before I do that that I just want to thank everyone for joining me and say that the main reason I do this is because I enjoy creating content for others. So I would appreciate doing what you can, meaning, you know, liking and even potentially subscribing to the Substack or the YouTube channel. I know it's a bit disorganized right now in the infancy of the channel, um, but it is greatly appreciated. Uh, So size is such a difficult conversation to have, and on that note of thanking people for the early support for this show, the entire reason that I want to do this show is because having a show like this gives me an opportunity to have longer, nuanced conversations without writing posts that look like New Age fantasy novels. So the first thing I think to really talk about, and the true nuance at size or when discussing size is at the wide receiver position because more and more in fantasy we're learning that there is no true correlation in many cases between size and success but I think the important thing to remember in that is that that doesn't necessarily mean that size is not a positive trait right so the difficulty here in the nuance is just that I am very tall personally, but that does not necessarily mean I am a good wide receiver, right? When you're talking about independent variables and things that push things forward, the the important ones are going to be things like being able to win with route running or have good hands far more often that are going to determine success from players as independent variables. But that doesn't necessarily mean that size cannot be, for example, a force multiplier or something that can take your abilities, like say in a Marvin Harrison Jr. comparison, how his size takes his abilities as a route runner, his smoothness as a route runner, and maximizes him into somebody who we see as this potentially generational prospect, right? And what makes him such a potential matchup nightmare is how his size works as a multiplier to what he already has. But if Marvin Harrison was just some tall dude, he would not be a good wide receiver, obviously. And then on top of that, it's kind of difficult to talk about a subject where I find it somewhat valuable, but not extremely valuable, But the market doesn't seem to care about it at all, and that is arm length. 
strength, right? So when it comes to a wide receiver, we talk a lot, or at least a good amount, about height, which is how far the top of their head is off of the ground. But a much more reasonably important thing for a wide receiver is the length of their arms. The length of their arms helps in direct one-on-one confrontations with cornerbacks, where the cornerback is trying to use their arms to put their hands on your body, to jam you at the line, to have that that pressure in the first five yards where contact is legal and the ability to get away from that contact is made much easier or harder largely based on the size of your arms obviously the way you use the arms are important as well but it is easier to use a better tool which would be the longer arm in this case so again i don't think arm length is an extremely important variable but it is one that i don't see other people putting any value in at all and I have also studied it particularly when it comes to smaller wide receivers and I will cover this a bit more in a second podcast probably later this week maybe next week as a a follow-up to the arm length conversation but what I have found so far in the data that I have studied so far is that when it comes to smaller wide receivers and hitting at the NFL level when a smaller wide receiver has a higher percentile of their arm length than their height, as in, say, their 10th percentile height, but 20th percentile arm length, that archetype seems to be more successful, generally speaking, at the NFL level. And just to use some examples anecdotally, some of the small wide receivers that you think of the most, like Wes Welker, Steve Smith Sr., and Tyreek Hill, all have arm length percentiles that are far higher than their height percentile. In this past class, we had Zay Flowers, who had very small arms, but he was a first-round pick. Two hours a bit later, we had Tank Dell, and Tank Dell is another example of a player who does have a fairly substantial gap between his height and his arm length. Tank Dell's arm length percentile is quite a bit higher. And this also leads me into a conversation about playing outside and playing at high volume. The big thing about arm length into a big profile perspective, taking all this into consideration, is that players who have arm length in the outlier range, say close to 30 inches and basically anything below 30 inches, I have significant concerns about their abilities to play outside and you basically need them to profile like a Zay Flowers with the elite speed, elite change of direction, elite agility for you to believe that, or at least for me to believe that they can have success at the next level with those shorter arms. Around the 30 to 31 inch range, I do have a little bit more faith in players, but I really want to see those players be a bit more uh, explosive. So for example, Jalen Waddell is a player that has arm lengths in the 30 to 31 inch range, and his explosiveness I think really helps to offset uh, my concerns in how he profiles both back then and today. Once you get over that 31-inch range is when I really start to feel comfortable about a player's ability to be in a high-volume role or to be able to play outside. So this is just one number that I'm looking for. It isn't a big deal, but I really like to see wide receivers get into the 31 and above arm length range. There are three players in Roman Wilson, Ladd McConkie, 
And once again, Ricky Pearsall, who have gotten quite a bit of buzz this week, but they are all players who score a little bit worse on my size calculations because they factor in arm length and none of these players are very good in arm length so just for a comparison tank dell is two three and four inches shorter than these players but tank dell has longer arms than roman wilson he has longer arms than lad mcconkey and he has uh, arms that are only a quarter inch shorter than Ricky Pearsall, who has measured in at four inches taller than Tank Dell. So consider the concerns I have about these players in general, right? On show one, one of the main things I said about Lad McConkey was I didn't know if he was an inside-outside guy or an inside guy. And one of the biggest things I said about Roman Wilson was I wasn't sure if he was a high-volume guy. So seeing both of them have some pretty poor arm length scores does give me some concern. In particular, Lad McConkey's is pretty concerning at 30 and 1 8 inch. There are very few historical hits at 30 and 1 8 inch or below, and so that starts to get him into some of the red flag range. So while a lot of people I think are excited about how Ladd McConkey performed at the Senior Bowl generally, it's one of the cases for me where I, I don't believe in double counting what we already knew and being able to perform at a high level, being able to route run well, being able to gear shift at a setting like the Senior Bowl is not something that is really surprising at all with Lad McConkey. After all, Lad McConkey is one of the players at the Senior Bowl who has consistently played against teams that might be at a higher level than some of the competition he's facing at the Senior Bowl, at least for some players on that team, being that he's both played at the SEC level and in playoff games, right? So Lad McConkey didn't really, on the positive side, tell me anything I didn't already know, but on the negative side, seeing his arm length at 30 and 1 8 inch is a bit of a red flag to me, and because the big question, the linchpin that I have put into his profile is, is he an inside and outside guy, or is he an inside guy? And 30 and 1 8 inch is something that kind of pushes that towards the inside. Uh, again, Ricky Pearsall has, has arms that are a bit larger than that and aren't in the same outlier range necessarily but it does dampen the idea that this player is six feet tall so to speak i don't believe he is six feet tall the way we typically think about it because having shorter arms he does not make the most of a six foot tall wide receiver frame at least as we normally envision it the one i'm least concerned about in terms of generally is probably roman wilson because i do think i see him as the most explosive of the trio but roman wilson is still a player who again going back to show one my big concern about him was could he hold up into higher volume roles and I didn't necessarily see that as a translation for him. And so having shorter arms at the 30 and one quarter inch range is something that also doesn't help to alleviate any of those concerns. So I don't mean to be negative about so many of these players. Uh, I do think as much as I haven't been a huge fan of his, Brendan Rice is a key name of a player who set himself up very well to improve his stock in the Senior Bowl. His measurables were great. Uh, a lot of people liked a lot of the things he did on tape or throughout the practice week. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, there are just a lot of things that I was looking for to learn in the Senior Bowl. And uh, frankly, just a lot of them did not go the way I would have hoped. Uh, a lot of the measurables were not what I was hoping to see. A lot of the players who I believed were at a fringe of some measurable or another ended up being a bit worse than I expected. And when it comes to some of the players who are getting the most hype, I don't necessarily know if they are profiles I love. So, you know, that is all I have for the wet blanket edition of the Senior Bowl coverage. And so to wrap up the show here, I have gone back through and listened once more, and that is probably going to be the typical pattern here. I'm going to try to record the initial show in as few sittings and cuts as possible, and then try to wrap it up and add a bit of a postscript after listening through. There are no major corrections this week, though if you're someone who is a bit more uh, numbers-minded, uh, when I brought up Dylan Lauby's importance of the A dot, never actually mentioned the A dot. That might have irritated you a bit, uh, which his, his A dot, his average depth of target in his sixth-year senior season was 1.8. Uh, additionally, and, and I'll end on, I guess, what will be a bit of a silly note, uh, I touched on a, a metaphor and independent variables, and so I just want to, to extend that. That metaphor a bit because I think it helps understand the importance of size, which is a very nuanced thing, particularly when there's so many people writing about, you know, where there is importance or a lack of importance in size, right? So on a personal note, and I am using myself as an example throughout this uh, extended metaphor, I have what you might consider requisite NFL size. I'm about six foot one flat, I am a bit broad, and I do have long arms. Let's just pretend I'm in a bit better shape than I am right now. If I woke up tomorrow at perfectly or ideal or elite NFL height, arm length, weight, whatever measurement you want to throw out there, I am not going to even believe that I can show up at the Senior Bowl and think that because I'm six foot five inches now, as opposed to six foot one inch, that I will be able to have any kind of different success than I would have today, which is none at all. Now, if by some magic I woke up tomorrow as a truly elite to generational route runner, I'm not saying I could play in the NFL, but I might be able to cook some senior bill corners. Like I might be able to, at six foot one, be able to create separation and and win some routes on the day and, and be a successful player, at least at that kind of a level. And I think that's kind of the difference in the two. The independent ability to win or not win or be good or not good is really not affected at all by my height. Other things independently drive my abilities or lack of abilities in this space, primarily more technical skill-based things. And that's why as more independent variables, those are going to show stronger relationships, stronger correlations, and all kinds of things like this. To put it in maybe one more example that might be a bit more straightforward, if you're doing a schoolyard football pick between two players, and I don't tell you anything about the two players, right? But I tell you that one of the players is taller than the other. You might, and you're, he's for a wide receiver. You might decide that you're going to go with the taller person, but you're not going to feel super good about it. If I told you that one of the guys could run at least college level routes, you would take that guy in a heartbeat. Or if, and if I told you he was a better route runner, you would take that guy in a heartbeat. You wouldn't even consider it. You wouldn't be worried about it. You would say, all right, I got a guy who's a great route runner. That That's all I need to hear. So, you know, it's important to think about variables in kind of different ways, right? Height, 
size, length, these things don't drive the abilities of a player, of a wide receiver in particular. But particularly when you're doing what I'm doing and what a lot of people in this space are doing, which is project projecting people from a far way out, right? I mean, I already have a top 40 list for 2025. It's important to look at these things because they do help and they are individually important in a sense that they they help to put profiles into perspective for the same reason that you know redefining Xavier Leggett's profile at six foot one inch is a negative uh, so that is why I think you can have this nuanced uh, situation where you both don't believe height weight speed arm length are the most important things individually but can also understand from a profile perspective how they lead to success. And that is all I have for today. I will at least be discussing my findings on arm length historically in regards to smaller wide receivers in the next show. That's either going to be later this week or early next week. It kind of depends on how much I feel like I'm going to be able to talk about because there's not many uh, new things coming out. If I feel like I'm able to talk about a lot, I'll have a show later in the week and around this time next week. I would also once again like to take the opportunity to reach out to anyone listening uh, and say, send me the names of any wide receivers who are smaller and have had success at the NFL level. I do have a fairly long list already. I will post it with whatever timestamps, comments, wherever this video is posted, wherever you find it, you should be able to find the list uh, nearby it. So if you have any names that are not on that list, please let me know because I would like to add them to the study uh, as soon as possible and before the next show. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.